If you have your Bible with you today, I'd like you to open with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 1. Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And today we're going to begin a section of Jesus' teaching that, that, that impacts each one of us. We'll be looking at the subject of prayer. Subject of prayer. Now, prayer is one of those things that it's... Um, it's kind of one of those odd things in life because it's essential in, in life. It's essential in our faith, in our Christian walk. And we know it's essential. We know it's very important to do on a daily basis. And yet, it's something at the same time that many of us neglect. If I were, if I were to have taken a poll today, I'm guessing that probably none of us here would have said, Yes, Pastor, I pray as much as I should. I, I have no room for improvement in this area. I pray every day. Uh, for a specific amount of time, I'm, I'm organized in my prayers, I stay focused, I never fall asleep while I'm praying, I've got it under control. Now, we, we, the, the thing is, we recognize that we need to do it more often. Many times we feel guilty about not doing it more often, and yet, and yet we, 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 we know we need to be more disciplined in our prayer life, but at the time, same time, we push it off in the corner. How many times have you thought to yourself something like this? Well, tomorrow, I'm going to do better. Tomorrow I'm going to get up. I'm going to get up. I'm going to set my alarm for earlier, and I'm going to get up and I'm going to pray. I'm going to have a time of prayer, and I'm going to start my day off right because this day just really stank, and I'm going to I'm going to do better. And so the thing is, you, you go to bed the next morning. You get up, and, uh, and and you don't get up in time. Your alarm goes off. Maybe you didn't set it for earlier. Maybe you did. You just slept through it. You just kept hitting the snooze button, and your brain kept saying, "Just nine more minutes, and it'll all be better." And and you just kept saying, I'll, "I'll I'll do it. I'll get up later. I'll get up later." You get up late. You don't have time to do it. Or if you do it, you just rush through it. You do like the thirty second prayer service, and and then you say, "Well, I didn't do a good enough job this morning. Tonight I'm going to do better. Here's what I'm going to do. When I get home from work." I'm going to, before I go to bed, I'm going to set aside some time. I'm going to turn off the TV. I'm going to put down the phone. I'm going to close my computer. The kids are going to be in bed. Maybe my spouse is going to be asleep. I'm just going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to have a time devoted to the Lord. But then you get home from work, and it's been a rough day. I mean, you're tired. You're, you, you have all this stuff that's been heaped on you at work. Stuff's not your job. You've been, you've been dealing with a, a jerk of a boss. You're shorthanded at work. You spend too much time watching TV. You get caught up with all the stuff that's going on with the, the kids and, and, and stuff like that. You spend so much time playing online. You look at social media. And before too long, you're exhausted. You're, you're asleep in the chair. And you've not done any praying. Or if we do it, we do it out of a sense of obligation because you said, I'm going to do this before I go to sleep. I'm really tired. i got to get it done. And you, you remember that fast talker from back in the 80s or 90s? That they just rattle off everything in, in just a matter of seconds. That's the way we pray sometimes. And for some of us, if we're real honest, prayer is kind of a mystery. Maybe we didn't grow up in, in church, or we didn't grow up in a church where they talked about prayer. Maybe nobody's told us how to pray. It's just you know you, you were just expected to to figure it out on your own. Well, Jesus, in in this week and probably the next week or two, Jesus is going to talk to us about prayer. He's going to show us how to pray. He's going to give us some definite teaching on prayer. And, and listen, even if prayer is your thing, you still have some lessons that can be learned that are, that, that are at least good to be reminded of. So if you found Luke 11, please stand with me in honor of God's Word if you're able. And we'll pick up in verse 1, and we'll only read uh, the first four verses today. It says, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, that he, uh, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, 
Teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Thank you. May be seated. Now, the first thing that I want you to see today is the example of prayer. The example of prayer. Now, if you look back at verse 1, it says that Jesus is praying, praying in a certain place. Now, we've talked about this in the past, but one of the things that Luke does oftentimes is he focuses on the prayer life of Jesus. He mentions Jesus' prayer life more than any other gospel writer. So, for instance, at his baptism in Luke 3.21, it says that, that while Jesus was praying, the heavens were opened and a voice came down out of heaven. In 5.16, he would often, the Bible says he would often slip off by himself to pray in the wilderness. In 6.12, before he chose the apostles, you remember the Bible says he spent all night in prayer. In chapter, Luke chapter 9, verse 18, he was alone praying, and then he asked who men said that he was. Later in that same chapter, in verses 28 and 29, we have the, the, the instance of the Sermon, or not the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes some disciples up, and before he is transfigured, he is in prayer. In Luke twenty two thirty two, Jesus says, he tells Peter, I've prayed for you. Remember, Satan wants to uh, sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. In Luke twenty two forty one, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is in prayer. What I'm saying is, Jesus was a man of prayer. This man uh, that, that needed it least was the one who prayed the most. And if any of us, and, and if, that's, if that is true, how much more so do we need to be a people of prayer? Jesus spent time in prayer. Now, no doubt the disciples knew about Jesus' prayer life. They were with him all the time. They're with him every day. They saw him go off by himself to pray. They overheard him pray. There, and there was something about his prayer life that stood out. There was something about his prayer life that they wanted to emulate. There was something that said, you know what, I want to be like that. Now, before we move on, um, as I was studying, I, I read a, a commentator that made a statement that kind of stuck out to me. And he was talking about how comforting it must have been to the disciples that they knew that Jesus was praying for them. That they, that they experienced that comfort. That, that it had to be an encouragement to them that whatever it was that they faced, they knew that Jesus was praying to the Father for them. And when I thought about I saw that, and I thought, man, I never thought about that. I kind of wish I had that. And then I thought, dummy, you do. Because the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7 and verse 25, Jesus always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God. That means Jesus intercedes, he prays to the Father on our behalf as Christians. That means that right now, Jesus is praying for you. He is praying for me. And I think that's, that's an incredible thing to hold on to. So, so we have the example of prayer that we see in Jesus' life. He didn't just say, do as I say, but not as I do. He says, do as I do. He, he set the example in his life. The second thing I want you to see is the need for instruction in prayer. The need for instruction in prayer. Now, somebody's noted that, that, that mankind is made for prayer. Mankind is made for prayer. It's not that we need instruction to pray, but rather that we need instruction on how, how to pray. See, the Christian, we pray to the one true God. The heathen prays to the false gods. The atheist he prays to himself, but oftentimes he uses the language of prayer in times of distress. And the, the issue isn't whether or not we should pray. We, we all recognize that we should. The, the issue is, how are we to do it? 
Now, if you look back at the text in verse 1, one of the disciples, we don't know which one, one of them asked for instruction in prayer. He said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. He's not saying give the same instruction. He said, John did it. Would you do it as well? And I, I, I just wonder, have you, and, and I don't want any hands or anything like that, but have you ever been taught how to pray? Have you ever been shown the right way and the wrong ways of prayer? Because many of us, we learn how to pray by hearing maybe our, if, if we grew up in a Christian home, maybe we heard our parents pray. Maybe we picked it up at church as the people that we heard pray out loud we, and just kind of soaked in. Maybe, maybe we just do our own thing. We say, well, I hope I'm doing it right. This disciple said, Lord, teach us to pray. And rather than give a list of do's and don'ts, that we'd have like a checklist and say, okay, I've done this and this and this. My prayer life is, is complete. Instead, Jesus gives us a model to follow. Now, as we look at, the, as we look at verses 2 to 4 as a whole, there are a couple of observations I want to make. The first, I want you to note, it's brevity. It's brevity. It is a short prayer. Jesus did not give a 13-point outline. He didn't, write a, he didn't write a book on prayer. He just said, here's, here's, here's what you can say. And it was short. Now, if, if you were to record a prayer, let's say you had to re, if you had to pin a prayer and you knew it would end up in the Library of Congress to be, to, to be kept for all time, would this be the prayer that you pinned? Most likely not. You'd want to have something a little lengthier. You'd maybe have a page or two or three or four or five pages. You wouldn't have something so short. Now, Jesus' his prayer, it was, it was short, it was definite, it was to the point. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for something, somebody that just says what it is that they want to say. Now, I usually say things like, now you probably didn't do this, but probably somebody on your road did. But I know you all, so I'm going to just say you did this. When you were in school, and you were assigned a paper, and the, the teacher would say, this paper needs to be seven pages long. I always hated that, didn't you? And you didn't have seven pages worth of stuff to say. What did you do? You'd make like a pillow and you'd fluff it, wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd write bigger. You'd move those margins in. It, on, on the computer, you wouldn't have single space. You'd have 1.2 space. I mean, you, and, and what you do, you, you, you add in extra adjectives. You would take that one statement that you said and you'd say it four different ways in four different places. And Are you saying more stuff? No, you're just saying the same thing, just inefficiently. You're fluffing it like a pillow. Now, I notice Jesus is fluffless. He doesn't fluff his prayer at all. Now, some of us, whenever we get down to prayer, we bow our heads to pray, it's like we think, well, I need to just really have a lot more to say than what I need to say to God. I mean, my request, I only have like two things, but I need to, need to fluff it. And Jesus, his example shows us, no, that's not the correct thing to do. We need to be to the point. No fluff. Now, I'm just going to, I hesitate to do this because I'm going to walk where angels uh, fear to trod, but I'm going to walk there anyway. I'm going to just, I'm just going to talk about the elephant in the room because if, if when we were reading through there, your Bible may have read differently than mine or your neighbor's. Because when we read through it, most likely you're familiar with the, the, the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the language is a little bit different there. Well, this is not the same teaching as the Sermon on the Mount. It's in a different time, different place. So it's not the exact same teaching, so it's going to have a little bit different wording. 
But depending on your translation, this prayer may have had more language in it than what your neighbors had or what we read. And I say that angels dare to, to tread here because I've addressed, I had somebody ask me about this. I addressed why it was the way it was and he left the church. So hopefully you all don't do that. So I'm just going to tell you the facts of the matter, okay? And, and you don't you can like it or, or dislike it. That this is just the reason there's a difference between some translations and others. Because what happens is some people will see this. They'll say, oh, well, that's shorter. Those people are taking stuff out of the Bible. Have you ever heard stuff like that? So what's the difference? Why do some translations read a little bit differently? Early copies of the Bible were not printed on paper like this by machines. They were not Xerox. They were not typeset. They were all written by hand. And so early copies were written by hand, and they were called manuscripts. So when translators of the English Bible go from Greek or Hebrew into English, they look at the early manuscripts and translate into English. Now, it's, it's no secret that through the years, more and more manuscripts have been found. I mean, you think of the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and places like that, those very famous things, but, but there are less well-known times whenever old manuscripts are found. And so uh, th- there's this mountain, there are thousands of manuscripts of either complete books of the Bible or partial books of the Bible. And so translators have to figure out which manuscripts are we going to translate into English from. So they have, they've, they've set some criteria for their choosing. One of the criteria is they prefer, they tend to give more weight to a shorter reading. And the reason is because if um, when the, the people are, are translating, or when they're, when they're copying the manuscripts, there is a tendency at times to either A, harmonize things, or B, if they are more familiar with another text, to include that when they're writing. So, for instance, if I said, what did Jesus say is the greatest commandment? What would you say? Love Lord your God with what? Heart, mind, soul, strength. Close. So, four things. If you're writing, if you're copying Matthew's gospel, he doesn't, that one doesn't have strength. It has heart, mind, and soul. And so, what would happen is, like in the Gospels, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, parables, a lot of these accounts have very similar language. And so what would happen is sometimes uh, scribes would bring in some of that other language to harmonize them, or because they're familiar with the great commandment, heart, mind, soul, and strength, they say, oh, what's the greatest commandment? And they glance over, see what it is, and write all four. But if they write Matthew's Gospel, they would include an extra word. And so the translators give more weight to the shorter readings. Also, they give more weight to, as, as a rule, older manuscripts because they are closer to the date of the original writing. Less time for uh, errors in transmission to happen. So I say all that, I'm building a front porch. Here is why I'm telling you all that. Because the earlier translations of the Bible did not have as many manuscripts to rely on as what we have today. The ones that they had tend to be later manuscripts, and the ones, uh, in this case, that some of the older translations used had language from Matthew's gospel out of the Sermon on the Mount included in Luke's gospel, which is much a much shorter prayer. So, if you are reading 
Another translation, it may have read a little bit differently in this point. And the reason is, it's not that somebody is deleting stuff out of the Bible for some nefarious purposes. It says that the newer translations are rendering what Luke wrote, not what Luke and Matthew wrote. And so I'm, I, I say this to say that's why there are some differences. It, like I said, it's not that no, anybody's being nefarious. It's not that this is a, a perversion instead of a version. It's that there are just factual differences between the manuscripts. So, hopefully that doesn't make you mad. If it did, I don't know what to tell you. That's just the facts of the matter. That's why there's a difference. Um, to, to my knowledge, the, extra, the, the language that we have out of Matthew's Gospel does not appear in any of the early manuscripts of Luke. Okay? So, I say all that just to kind of get that out of the way, probably more than you wanted to know about that. A third observation about this, not only is it brief, but it's simple. It's simple. Jesus, not only does he not fluff it, he doesn't flower it at all. He doesn't give flowery language. And personally, I like that because eloquence is not a trait that I possess. And some people have such a command of the English language that whenever you talk to them, sometimes I, I listen to people and it's just like, how did you know all that? And then when they're really focused on doing something and flowering it up, man, I, can't, I have to get a dictionary out and look it up or I have to Google it. And Jesus doesn't do that. He's short, simple, to the point. Just If, if we were having a meal, there was no, there was no salad. It's all just meat and taters. I mean, it was, it was there. So what does he say? What is the content? Well, let's, let's look briefly at it. First, he addresses God as Father. If you look back at verse 2, Father. Now, I mentioned this, I think it's a couple of weeks ago, but, but, but some people talk about the universal fatherhood of God. Now, that's not right. God is not everyone's Heavenly Father. He is the Heavenly Father of Christians. And, and we've been adopted into His family. We are His children. That means, if you have the same Father, that means the other Christians are your brother and sister in Christ, whether you like it or not. We are the family of God. Next, he, he says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, that word hallowed is not one that we use, but it means to set apart, to sanctify, to treat as different. Now, this is not when he says, hallowed be your name. He is not implying, and we should not infer, that he is, the, the God's name is somehow not holy enough. He's not saying that we can somehow add to some deficiency in the hallowedness of God's name. What he's saying is we should wish that God's name, his honor, his reputation would grow among the people of the world. And one of the ways that happens is by Christians living in a God-honoring way. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and what? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. The opposite of that would be to live in a way that dishonors God, that would bring, uh, that, that, that would, that would profane His name among the people. So, for instance, Romans two twenty four says, "For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written." Now, as we think about this, how often does God's honor ever factor into our prayers? We think about it, the last last couple times you prayed. How many times did you even think about God's honor and glory being the subject of any of your prayer time? I suspect that they didn't even make it onto the prayer list most times we pray. 
Next, he says that we should pray that God's kingdom would come. That his kingdom would come. Now, most of, the, most of the items, most of the petitions in this prayer are all about the present. They're about the here and now. But you'll notice that that is not what he talks about here. He talks about God's kingdom coming. This longs for the day when Christ will return and the eternal state begins. It's, it's a prayer that God would right the wrongs. That he would set things straight. That he would bring justice into this world. That the kingdom would be inaugurated. And so that, that all the things that have to happen for that to take place would occur. So like the kingdom, or the, the gospel would go to all the world so that the kingdom could come. Next, if you look in verse 3, it says, Give us each day our daily bread. This is a reference to God providing manna to the Israelites in the Old Testament. You remember they, they, they needed bread. They said, we're hungry, we're starving, we don't have anything to eat. So God gave them bread from heaven, gave them manna. And it happened on a day-to-day basis. This is a recognition that God is, is the source of not only our spiritual needs, but also our physical needs. And, and yes, we can, we, we can and we should store up and save for the future. That's, that's wisdom. But listen, this is a recognition that we depend daily on God's provision. It's a parallel idea to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to put on or what you're going to, or, or any of those things. You need to trust Christ daily for provision. It also ties into the text out of, I believe it's Lamentations 3, where it says that, that, that God's mercies are new every morning. On a daily basis, we depend on God for our physical and for our spiritual needs. Finally, at the end, verse 4, he says, And forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. The way the original language reads this, this forgiveness is associated with the daily need, just like the daily need for food is. He says, daily forgive us our sins. In other words, not only are, are we in need of God's provision each day, we're in need of His forgiveness each day. Why? Because we all have feet of clay, and even on our best days, we all fall short. Even on our best days, when, when we go to bed at night, we say, you know what, today wasn't too bad of a day. I didn't have any major mess-ups. But then when you start looking back over the details, you remember, well, I wasn't always patient with my spouse. I wasn't always obedient to my parents. I wasn't long-suffering with the cashier at Walmart who was moving like the sloth in Zootopia. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't showing Christ-likeness to that person that cut me off on the road and then went five mile an hour under the speed limit. I, I kind of lost my temper when that person, you know, did whatever it was. I, I had a bad attitude whenever the boss said, I've got some bad news, we've got some extra work we've got to get done. I had impure thoughts, I was greedy, I was self-centered. And you start making your way through, and you realize, man, even on my best days, it ain't good enough. I didn't, I didn't nail it. And it is daily that we need forgiveness for those things. Not because we need to be saved again, but because our sin affects our fellowship with the Lord. And here's the most uncomfortable part of this uh, prayer. Looking in at verse 4. Forgive us our sins, for we, for, because... We ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And he's not talking about money. He's talking about people that have wronged us. Now he's not saying that our forgiveness is earned or merited by forgiving others. 
but rather he's saying that we as Christians have experienced the forgiveness of God. And because we have experienced that, and God has so graciously and lovingly and mercifully and generously and abundantly and completely and utterly and totally forgiven us, that's the way we should treat somebody that wrongs us. And that is not a comfortable thought. Does that describe you? When you forgive others, do you forgive them in that way? Do you hold it against them no longer? Finally, in verse 4, he says, And lead us not into temptation. Now, we know from the book of James that God doesn't tempt anybody to sin. He doesn't try to get us to do wrong. It's not that he's pushing us to, the, to, to, to do wrong. He's not setting out some... some uh, some treat, oh, uh, you took it, so I got you now. It's nothing like that. God doesn't want us to sin. He doesn't lead us into temptation in the sense of trying to get us to sin. So what do we make of what Jesus says? Well, a more literal rendering would be, keep us from the evil one. In other words, on a day-to-day, nay, a moment-by-moment basis, we are surrounded by evil. And what's worse is we have a, a fallen nature that wants to take part in that evil. And we have to wrestle against those things. And this prayer is that basically, God, when I'm surrounded by this, please keep me from giving in. Please keep me from that sin. Keep keep me from falling in those hours of temptation. Jesus said this, you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his, his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Therefore, we need to, to ask God to strengthen us, to help us in those times. Now, I know that some people believe that we should pray Jesus' exact words, especially if you look back at verse 1, or sorry, verse 2. Jesus says, when you pray, say this. You say, well, that's, that's pretty cut and dry. Except the two prayers, the two model prayers that we have of Jesus, he didn't pray the exact same thing. When he taught this, he didn't say the same thing, which is significant. When we see him in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't pray this. In John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, he didn't say these things. He's saying this is a, a sample, this is an example for us to follow, to learn from. Now, in, in just a moment, we're going to have a time of, of prayer, and it'll be a chance for each person to respond. And I would encourage you to take that opportunity to pray. Don't just stand there with your eyes closed, trying to pretend that you're praying. Don't stand there with your eyes open, trying to see what's going on around you. Actually pray. Lift up your needs. Use this Use this as a model, as a guide. Because what did Jesus start with? Was it, God, hit me? No, his first thing was, your kingdom come. He, he was more focused about God being first. What did Jesus say? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our, our priority, we need to orient our lives around the priority that God comes first, and then we can pray for ourselves, pray for others, pray for the lost people around you. Maybe there's somebody in this service who doesn't know Christ. Maybe it's somebody that's, that, that's, that's watching online. And it could be that you're here and you're not a believer. Pray that God would save you, that he would forgive your sins. And you become his child. Why don't you stand with me as uh, musicians come. Now as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes.
and with nobody looking around, I just want to ask you, how's your prayer life? And I I realize, I understand that we have a lot going on. And I don't remember if it's a, a... a book title or, or what it is I've seen. You know, sometimes we say too busy to pray and the, the thought is this, too busy not to pray. You have some need in your life that you need to lift up to the Lord? Some burden a loved one, a job situation, a health need. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you don't expect us to have a vocabulary that's as broad as the dictionary. That we don't have to flower it up, we don't have to fluff it up, that we can just come to you in a simple, straightforward manner. And God, as we, even now, we pray that your name would be hallowed and that your kingdom would come. Help us to not just tack that on out of doing some sort of rote memorization, but help us to really long for your kingdom to come. God, we thank you for your daily provision for us. Not just physical needs, but also spiritual as well. And God, I pray that, um, that even now as, as we uh, lift our, our hearts up to you, that, that our prayers would be acceptable, that our worship would be acceptable. And that if somebody here who's never accepted Christ as their Savior, that you would draw them to yourself. Let them, uh, let them become your child today. Not because they're some sort of magical incantation that'll, that if they'll just mouth the words, that it'll happen. But as we trust in you for forgiveness of sins, that you'll redeem us and bring sin to your family. God, I lift up each person that's here, each person maybe that's that's watching this online or a different time. I lift them up to you and ask that you would do your will in each life. God, we thank you for the opportunity to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.